From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Episode 9 of Circle of Willis, where I chat with psychologist and entrepreneur Hal Movius about how to understand confidence as well as the different ways confidence can strengthen or weaken our ability to handle difficult negotiations. <sighs> Folks, whatever else is true, it turns out that one of the worst ways to deal with a difficult negotiation is to avoid it. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn again, and uh, as I've said before, this is my podcast, Circle of Willis. For this episode, episode nine, if you keep in count, I'm taking the podcast in a bit of a different direction, a, uh, a direction I've long planned on taking it, but haven't really managed yet, which is to talk with someone who's really more of a science communicator than a working scientist per se. And I have... I have lots of reasons for that, reasons which I will detail, I think, at another time. Specifically, I'm chatting here with Hal Movius, uh, who is one of the closest friends I've got or am ever going to have in this lifetime that is probably well past half over by now. Hal and I actually uh, actually went to grad school together starting uh, over 20 years ago now, and and at that time... He was really, he was my principal intellectual as well as recreational buddy. And, and really, as far as my science goes, uh, there are a, a vanishingly small number of people who've really influenced my thinking as much as Hal Movius has. And I'd say that remains true today, as true at least as it was when we were in grad school, even though, even though our lives took us in pretty different directions. You know, I went, I went more or less straight into a postdoc and then the, to the, the tenure track to where I am today, which is at the University of Virginia here in little old Charlottesville. But Hal, uh, Hal more or less, right after grad school, decided he wanted a different kind of life. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. But in, in some ways, that kind of surprised me. I'll, I'll try to explain that. First, Hal, Hal will probably object to my saying this, but I literally know no one personally, who reads more of the current social scientific literature than Hal does. I mean, I think sometimes it's a source of frustration for him because, you know, a, a common conversation between us goes something like this. You know, Hal's like, hey, Jim, did you read this? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And then he's like, well, did you read this? And I'm like, no, I did not. And then he's like, well, you know, for, for God's sake, did you read this? And I'm like, nope. And it's sort of always been that way with us. Probably always will be that way. See, Hal's a voracious consumer of behavioral science, and, and not, or at least not only, for instrumental reasons. He just wants to know it, you know? And that's as close to an academic mindset as I can really imagine. But it really, it, for me, it goes deeper than that. Because Hal actually comes from, from a family of academics. In fact, Hal's grandfather, also Hal Movius, by the way, was a, was a famous Harvard uh, archaeologist. I think it was an archaeologist. 
who, who was a member actually of the National Academy of Sciences and also for a time the curator of, of Harvard's Peabody Museum. And it's funny, there's even a lecture series there at Harvard named after him. So, you know, that too suggested to me that uh, Hal Movius was bound for the Academy, but, uh, but Hal was not having it. He was not interested in doing that. He had another, another vision for himself. Instead, he found himself increasingly interested in applying behavioral science in ways that people might find useful. And to that end, wound up founding Movius Consulting, which is his business. It's a business specifically designed to bring behavioral science to bear in resolving conflicts and promoting strong and socially responsible negotiation practices. So, you know, Hal has figured out how to leverage his training as a scientist and, I would say, his, his very real intrinsic interest in how people work into a way that, that maybe helps people and, you know, makes him a little money, a little green, you know, a living in the process. And anyway, more recently, he started writing books about how companies and people can handle negotiations more effectively. The most recent of these is called Resolve, Negotiating Life's Conflicts with Greater Confidence. And this book draws on decades of behavioral science to propose a a pretty comprehensive approach to understanding what confidence is, as well as how confidence can both hurt us and help us when we're trying to negotiate conflict. And when I read Hal's book, I, I really, I couldn't help thinking about sort of the many things that motivated me to start this very podcast not least of which was the discourse among scientists who disagree about whether science is in crisis and, uh, you know, in any event, what to do about that. So, so there's that. But it has not escaped my notice, I want you to know, that this episode of Circle of Willis is being released in early January, when a lot of my junior colleagues will be out on the job market, possibly, possibly getting job offers. And that very few of these junior colleagues have thought about whether and how they will negotiate for things like higher salaries, more startup funds, lower teaching loads, and things like that once the job offers start rolling in, if they do. And I do hope they do, all of you who are out there working through that issue. Now, I I know that when I was on the job market, I'd hardly thought of this at all. And when the offers did come in, I was far too timid to consider, you know, negotiating anything. I mean, I was just so grateful to have an offer at all. But that's, here's the thing about this conversation that, that you're about to hear, if you keep listening. It's, I, I think it's going to resonate a lot with scientists earlier in their careers. I hope it does. I could be wrong about that, but I think it really uh, will for at least two reasons. You know, one of these, as I've already said, is it, it's sort of negotiation season. And our graduate programs, as a rule, do not really offer negotiation guidelines or training. And I think that's a problem. But the other thing is, you know, Hal's story offers at least a, a kind of a, a glimpse of an alternative route to success for scientists. He did things differently. And I think there's real value in considering those differences. All right. That said, I actually did, I cut a lot of our conversation out for this particular episode. Uh, what, what follows here is mostly Hal's perspectives on confidence, on negotiation training, you know, and his perspective on science as a tool 
for solving real world problems. But we also had a really interesting conversation about how Hal did his graduate school pretty differently than most of us did. And, and I'll be releasing that as bonus material later on. Until then, friends, here's Hal Mobius. But we met in uh, 1996, I think we met. We met in 1990. Or maybe 1995. When did, you, when did you arrive? Either, I think it was fall of 96, actually. This is what I remember. I remember being in the mail room at the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona. <clears throat> and I knew who you were because I knew you were interested in meta-emotion. Right. I just read right. a paper on meta-emotion. Yeah. And I thought this was super cool. Our, our, our joint obsession for a while there. Yeah. And I introduced myself and said, oh, yeah, you're working with, you know, you're working with Varda and Michael, and but you do meta-emotion stuff, right? And you were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You had like something else yeah. to do or something. And then I bu- I kept bugging you though. I kept bugging you. You invited me out. You took me to to uh what was it? The two pesos. pesos. Two pesos. Yeah. That was one of that those was, places that had the And that was that fall, I think. That was that in Tucson. Yeah. So yeah, the two pesos. What do we what do we do at two pesos? You, well, you, had just, a, you had some kind of thing you were doing. Yeah, it was called drinking beer. <laughs> Um, I thought it was. I no, thought it was I, what, what would happen is you could go there and get. They had happy hours. Remember the Roaring Nineties? This is when like gasoline was ninety three cents a gallon, yeah. and yeah. and you could get long necks, ninety nine cent <laughs> long neck beers. But the best thing is they had a free taco bar. Oh, so if yeah. you were a grad student, you would go get a ninety nine cent beer and then help yourself to, to the like taco bar lunch and dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I remember the tacos not being particularly impressive. <laughs> no, I don't even think they were tacos, really. <laughs> but uh, taco food. The thing substance. is, if you if you if you spent two dollars and ninety seven cents and got yourself three beers, then you didn't really care what yeah, the tacos right. were. And like that was anymore. that was the goal in any case, especially yeah. given the elevation and the dryness in the air. You were pretty. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You were well lit by like a beer and a half. <laughs> oh god and you sat yes. under these misters that right they, those were everywhere the, yeah you'd sit out this is i presumably you still do you sit under the misters because it it evaporates so quickly that it cools the air isn't that the idea i think it's just that everybody's so hot that you want this like cool misty water coming down on you or else you're gonna leave the just bar die. quickly yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know i remember when i first got to Tucson, I remember that, that summer coming out of my house in this wave of hit, of heat enveloping me that was so, it actually it resulted in this joke. So I, I have a joke about Tucson, where which was literally true at that moment where the wave of heat hit me, which was that the only thing that mitigated my suffering in Tucson was my fascination at how much I was suffering. It's <laughs> pretty good, huh? Yeah. It used to get better less. <laughs> So I remember. Um, I remember leaning against my car and burning myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you get from there to running Movius Consulting? You know, here twenty years later, and I mean, it's sort of like I'm, th- I'm thinking of this sort of like the the education of Hal Movius, right? <laughs> it's a very short book. <laughs> but first of all, I I wonder if you could 
really clarify because I don't. I'm not even even after all these conversations I've had with you and all this time, I'm not 100% clear on what Movius Consulting does or what it is <laughs> yeah. well, exactly because it seems like you do a lot of things with it. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's a <clears throat> consulting, coaching, and training outfit that works with companies around the world and helps them to negotiate and communicate more effectively. That's my spiel. Uh-huh. But to your first question, I mean, how did I end up there? I remember getting in a huge, triggering a huge um, <laughs> wave of hostility in my uh, <laughs> in my first year. I remember seven or eight of those <laughs> at some points in... Yeah, but we had a first year pro seminar, and at some point on some sleepy afternoon, I suggested that all things being equal, if the pie were shrinking and there were only finite research dollars, that tackling really important real world problems should be a priority. And that you know everybody went ballistic and oh, said, yeah. you know, you're out of your mind. Basic research leads to all kinds of unexpected. And I said, yeah, you yeah, know, I get it. Yes, in a perfect world, we do tons of it. You know, but. We have these like super pressing problems in the world at large, and maybe we should start with those, and those might lead us to some really interesting. Be- anyway, I, yeah, no, I Lee, said it Lee partly Seacrest to be had some really interesting thoughts about that as well. But yeah, yeah, and Lee was very—I mean, he was another person who was very interested in real in real world yeah, problems, right? And he rejected the notion that focusing on real world problems precluded progress in basic science, yeah, exactly. Which is how I saw it, but. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think it was just my ambivalence, Jim. I don't think it was like I was ambivalent about grad school. I saw that there was a there were other choices, which I think a lot of kids coming right out of college just hadn't seen. And I had this great lucky thing where I found myself while I was a graduate student working with very senior leaders of academic institutions and foundations and professional schools in a consulting role. Sort of widening your perspective on the whole milieu. Yeah, and seeing to some extent how arbitrary, regressive, and hierarchical, and petty academic culture can become. (laughs) And I have to say, as much as I loved, I really loved a lot. I mean, I'm so grateful for the professors. I felt, I mean, I felt like I had a great experience. I had great professors, great colleagues like you. But I started to realize that academic... I, I felt that an, that the academic culture might drive me crazy. So when I got out, <laughs> when I got out, when I finished my internship at Cambridge Hospital, which was totally exhausting, I mean, working, you know. Your clinical internship. Yeah, mean, my yeah. clinical internship, treating all the states indigent and poor right, and, right. you know, it was really challenging clinical population. I mean... This is a slight simplification, but I basically woke up one morning in a 400 square foot studio <laughs> realizing in Cambridge, right? In Cambridge realizing you know broke. Yeah. Realizing I, I remember that place. <laughs> yeah, you could almost stand up. Uh, um I didn't want to be an academic and I didn't want to be a clinician and I just spent 6 years of my life <laughs> doing both. Yeah, training to do th- do those things. Oh god, I love this story. Anyway, I mean, then I met Kate Bennis, who's now my wife, and which was super lucky, lots of luck. And, you know, at the time, I just, I wasn't sure what to do. And her dad, Warren Bennis, was a big, <laughs> I got to tell you this story. So Warren Bennis 
um, the late Warren Bennis is an, some people super, consider him the founder guy. of leadership yeah. studies. Yeah. He wrote 37 yeah. books he co-authored or authored. My wife is obsessed with some of his books now. Yeah. And, and, and also just an incredibly charismatic and wonderful person. I mean, the kind of person that made you feel like the most important, smartest person he'd ever talked to. And when I was first dating Kate and she said, my dad's coming to town. I think you should meet him. And I said, great. And I knew he'd been a university professor, a university president. He'd written some books, but it was early in our relationship. It's not like I'd sort of obsessed and figured out everything about her dad. Thank, (laughs) Thank God, because we went to dinner and we had this great conversation and he was asking me all about five factor personality theory. Uh and, uh And he mentioned in passing, like he had this very deep voice of, well, Hallam, I, there's, you know, there's a book I think you might like, uh, no, I really do. I think I really think you might like this one. And so I went to the coop, the Harvard coop the next day, and I asked the person, the clerk, do you have any books by Warren Bennis? And usually what they do is they turn to their little monitor and they type, 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 type. But she just looked at me and said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Warren Bennis room. She, yeah, she takes me upstairs. There's like a whole shelf. And then I started having a panic panic attack. <laughs> then I was like, oh my God, what did I say last night? What an <laughs> idiot I am. Oh, jeez. I have had that experience with so many people. So Warren became a, a really an important mentor. He launched me on a consulting and coaching path. I went to work for Linkage, which is a um, a big organizational development services firm. Um, I then went to work for ten year, almost ten years, for the Consensus Building Institute. Right. This which, really gets you on the trajectory. It seems like to me. Yeah. So what happened CBI. was, what happened was, I was sort of, you know, in my retooling phase. After I realized I didn't want to be an academic or a clinician, I went into consulting, and I found it a little bit soulless. And I could see like what success meant was traveling thirty weeks a year, and I thought especially with a new relationship, I, I don't want to do this. So I reconnected to some of my mediation and negotiation friends in Cambridge because the program on negotiation there is a big hub for interdisciplinary scholarship and practitioners. And uh, my friend David Fairman said, why don't you come work at CBI and help us build a, a business practice around assessment, coaching, and training? So I did that for 10 years. And meanwhile, I got married and had kids mm-hmm. and moved to Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then at a certain point, I got, especially after I'd moved, I felt really disconnected from the rest of the organization, which incidentally does incredible work all over the world, helping international agencies and NGOs to build capability in negotiation and dispute resolution. Yeah, and this is your real boots on the ground kind of yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't for me. And part of, part of the reason was with a wife and kids, I desperately didn't want to be on the road all the time. And I realized that corporations paid a ton more per day than anybody else. And so I just sort of said, you know what? I At this phase in my life, I am just going to do corporate work so I can survive. Right, right. And then after 10 years, I felt a little, you know, I'd done a bunch of things. I'd written a book with Larry Susskind. I'd Which was? Built to Win. Built to Win. Creating was, a world-class negotiating organization. Right. And I remember this book because uh, this this really got my attention. When did that come out? 2006? It came out. 
I have such a great sense of timing. It came out in two, 2009, right after the collapse of worldwide financial system collapse. <laughs> oh, God. But um, Well, you know, because, because I remember um, just given the kind of thinking that I've been doing in my own work, that one of the things that you argue in that book, if I recall correctly, is that the organization has to be thinking in along the lines of negotiation needs and capabilities rather than just having like an you know an identified negotiator yeah person, the big know. idea there is that is that negotiation is an organizational capability as well as an individual one so yeah. that if you just send people to training programs teach them new ideas new skills and then they go back and especially in for profit settings the things that get measured or the way things are done thwarts people's attempt to do think to be more creative or more collaborative or to get an overall better deal because one person in the organization, you know, legal or finance or somebody told them, no, you can't do that. We don't do it that way. Right. So in that we, and we'd worked, Larry and I had worked with a bunch of organizations and that book was really sort of documenting our attempts to help leaders and teams overcome organizational barriers to better negotiation practice. Right. And then, and so anyway, it's a big deal. Yeah, it was. I a think. Good, I think. I. I mean, I, the idea is a very big idea. I think. Well, thank you. I mean, I. I think so too, and it's been a basis for a lot of my practice. You know, I've worked with some organizations now for more than a decade. Organizations that have over a hundred thousand employees. So, oh God. you're really thinking strategically about capitalism publicly you know what does it mean to create shareholder value at any cost right what at when push comes to shove negotiation is really like where the rubber meets the road you can say on your website oh we love puppies and angels and making a better tomorrow and blah 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 blah. and by the way you get your bonus if you cut costs by 10 percent <laughs> right you know by any means necessary and that is the corporate world for so many people so that's what we're trying to help with. How do you get to ten percent without being a jerk or That's screwing what Movius, up relationships? So, so along the way, you you leave CBI and yeah. you start Movius Consulting, and yeah. this is where you start to really. It seems to me, I'm just going to suggest this and see what you think. <laughs> it seems to me you really start sort of stirring the your your sort of intellectual pot a little bit more, where you're bringing in experience from CBI and from you know working. Uh, you know, in headhunting agencies and with leadership companies, and also your scholarship. Does that seem right? I think aspirationally, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I wanted when I left CBI, when I started my own company, I wanted to move toward applied psychology. I mean, I'd been so focused on negotiation in the narrow sense. And negotiation is endlessly fascinating. It's an interdisciplinary field, it's incredibly productive um, in terms of different lines of research. It is a real world business problem that never goes out of season. So yeah. <clears throat> if you want to make a living, it's helpful. But, you know, at a certain point, I felt like that's not what I want to do the rest of my life. And what I really loved the most was the coaching and, cons excuse me, <laughs> coaching and consulting work that I was doing, where you have the chance to build a relationship with a leader or team as a trusted advisor. And I really like to draw, I think of myself as a research practitioner. I still read avidly yeah. lots of journals. I know you do. And try to bug people like you to help me understand them. <laughs> yeah. I, often enough, you understand them far better than I do. Mm, but I mean, no. you know, one of the things that I was wondering, hearing you, I mean, th these are such complex problems 
they have real consequences mm. and they're and they're tough to solve mm. um thinking about your identity as not only as a as a practitioner out in the world working on these tough problems but as a as a scholar as a person who was trained as a scientist does the science help you i think it does i mean it makes you cautious it there helps you, you recognize bs right which yeah. is just yeah. in which no has got to be supply. in a field like yours it's got to be oh god it's endless yeah endless claims endless misrepresentations of research and you must come up against that all the time in in the work that you do constantly um and i like to think that in trying to help leaders and teams and organizations that the advice we're giving is really grounded in evidence um as well as experience i mean when you do consulting for 15 years you start to recognize certain patterns and right yeah you start to understand <clears throat> what organizations are how they work at least at the bureaucratic level yeah yeah which I'm, i don't have the first clue about yeah there's it's funny there is a set of there's all kinds of implicit knowledge that you accrue in a funny yeah, way I'm about sure. c- culture and language and the ways people deal with one another in at work but yeah and then i so the last so built to win was a book about organizational barriers to negotiating and resolving disputes more effectively. But then I got curious about, even in non-organizational settings, why is it so hard for people to take the really sensible prescriptive advice about negotiation, like, you know, focus on interests, not positions. Right. And then when you actually encounter conflict or you're thinking about it, like, your neighbor's dog is barking and it's driving you crazy yeah. and you want to go over there and tell them to shut the dog up, but you also suddenly find yourself going, ah, you know, yeah. whatever, I'll just I go work at the library. I can't do it. Or, I can't, I'd rather gnaw my own leg off than, <laughs> than even confront the the neighbor about their barking dog. Well, see, that's it what's just so feels interesting. Like, it, feels, it feels to me like it's going to set off World War III and we're all going to die. My kids, my neighbors, everybody's going to die if I confront them about their dog. Well, so that's what I got interested in because in in negotiation, you know, there have been all these books written, great books, like How We Know It Isn't So, Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow. Right. Endless. Like ca- Tom Gilovich and... Yeah, Dan Kahneman and all those Dan Ariely, Max yeah, Bazerman, Ariely, yeah. you know, they're just really great research, all of which converge on the prescriptive advice to be less confident. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got it nailed then. Yeah, but the, but the, that's what got me curious as I found myself working, you know, teaching exec ed or teaching MBAs and basically giving them exercises where they behaved suboptimally and got suboptimal results. Right. And then I would show them how suboptimal they were and they would go, oh, wow, okay, yeah. And then I would describe why all the different biases they'd fallen prey to and all the reasons that they hadn't done it better. But, you know, at the end of the day, when I coach teams, they're just terrified. They're like, oh, my God, we're going to lose this client or right, we don't sure. know what to, or I know. That's or, because negotiation and conflict is terrifying. Well, that's just it. So I started. So this was the mystery. The mystery was how could it be that in some ways people are so overconfident, are, are needlessly overconfident in their judgments, in their reasoning, in their perceptions, but emotionally and behaviorally underconfident they they're frightened like you know the 
what I call the, the crucible of conflict, these three things that interact under pressure. You know, there's whatever the issue is at hand, like the barking dog or am I going to get a raise? There's the social capital that's at risk. Like if we disagree, what is that going to do to our relationship? Or what happens if I don't get what I want? Maybe I'm just, maybe that's the beginning of the end for our relationship. Or maybe you're going to say bad things about me and my reputation will suffer. Right. And then there's, the extent to which people want to avoid emotion or certain kinds of emotions. That's that's why I wrote this book. So I wrote this book okay, called so Resolve. Okay, so yeah, this is the new book. This yeah. is the new book. Resolve. And there's a subtitle, right? What's Negotiating this? Life's Conflicts with Greater Confidence. Yeah. I really love this book. Oh, I mean, thanks. I really do. I mean, I loved researching it because I ended up having to answer all these questions like, why does conflict freak people out so much? Why are people so characteristically avoidant? yeah. Even people who are confident in other ways, like CEOs. You know, the number one, when you ask CEOs of companies, what's the problem for which you most desperately need coaching? By far, the answer is managing conflict. Oh, God. I can't do it, man. I can't do it. I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Well, you're not alone. Because I can't do it. It's so painful. That's the point. It's dreadful. Because partly it's you're, you're coached. And you, just by observation, you're coached by how to sort of, you know, it's the never let them see you sweat kind of thing, right? You know, it's like, you know, you got to look confident, <laughs> but nobody's really talking about you got to be confident. And everybody sort of knows, at least implicitly, that being confident sets you up for a disaster, right? You know, you're going to go in there and not know what you're talking about. So you got to prepare like crazy. And, and then, but by God, you've got to not look like you're you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Else you're going to die. Well, I think a central insight that I came to in researching this is that confidence is not a unitary thing. It's not like a Goldilocks problem of you should have some, you should be in the 77th percentile for confidence. Right. right not too right. much, but yeah. it's not that. It's three different things that to be geeky for a minute, I went all the way back to the 80s research that Steve Breckler and others did on, you know, the three components of attitudes, affective, behavioral, and cognitive. Um, And I thought about confidence as a self-relevant attitude. And when you think about it that way, you know, there's an affective component, which is poise. Can I keep cool? Can I... So there is that sort of, that don't let them see you sweat kind of component to it. It may not be don't let them see you sweat. It's if I'm sweating, do I know how to manage that so that ah, I can keep talking to somebody? That's a big difference. Yeah. yeah. So it's not about suppressing your emotion. Um, it's about knowing, you know, it's like the, I'm trying to think of a metaphor. It's like you can't control the wind, but you can control the sailboat, right? You can figure out right. how, do, right. how does my, how does this boat drive or, or you know, glide and how do I work the sail in a way that over time I've learned that if I go this way or do these things, it helps. So there's poise, there's awareness, which is the way that you stay out of these narrow heuristic leaps. You know, you force yourself to engage in systematic thinking, system two thinking by using checklists and models and other things that remind you gee, I should think about, I should spend a little time thinking about how the other side sees this problem, or I should spend time thinking about what they think will happen if we don't reach agreement. And it it sounds so simple, but just in vivo, so many times I've seen really experienced, smart people in their anxiety and in all the data and numbers and analysis, 
forget to do these things. And then there's a third component, which is mastery, which is like know-how. It's procedural knowledge. People think for weeks about what they're going to say when they go in to negotiate a raise from their boss or to ask for an extra week of vacation or to work from home or whatever it is or to get more departmental funds or more another graduate yeah. student. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. You know, and they think about it and think about it and think about it. And maybe they write down lists or other things and they assemble data and benchmark. But almost nobody practices. And the thing is, it's I have executives do this all the time, but you can think about what you're going to say. And then when you actually go to say it, it comes out in a completely different way. I crumble like a flimsy piece of t tissue paper. <laughs> well, that can it. happen too. Yeah. But I mean, even for people who don't crumble, what happens is they haven't thought about the first three sentences they want to say. Like, how do I want to frame this conversation? What's the purpose? How do I want to open? And opening is really important. I mean, if you wander into a conversation, there's a lot, many more risks than if you sort of say, thanks for meeting with me. The reason I wanted to talk to you is... And then you framed it, you know, I, I want to talk to you because I need a way to get more funds and I know that you have a budget problem to solve. So I wanted to see if we could think of some options. Right. So that framing is really important and creating a space to brainstorm is really important and listening to what the other person cares about or is constrained by is really important. But we don't do those things. We go in with a bunch of arguments to rehearse, a bunch of complaints to make if they push back, a bunch of you know fingers to point about other people who got something. <laughs> it's We just do it wrong. So, And you don't realize that until you practice with somebody, even someone who knows nothing about the situation. And you can actually get people to practice? <laughs> it's hard. Because I've never practiced anything. It's like really that. hard. That's I, what I, I write about imagine. in the book. Yeah. It's really hard. People don't want to do it. But think about it this way. Even if you just sat with your smartphone and said, all right, I think I know what I'm going to say to my boss, but I'm just going to practice saying the first three sentences. Or I'm afraid that when I ask for this, I know exactly what they're going to say. They're going to say, no, you can't have it because X. Uh -huh. So what will I say at that moment? I'm going to practice that. Negotiation is a, is a complex activity. It's like riding a bike or swimming or, you know, making a complicated dish. So if you think about confidence as having these three components and you recognize that most people don't default in conflict to thinking like a negotiator would, they just think, okay, how do I not have to deal with this? Or I'll just give in so they'll stop being mad at me or I'll convince them that I'm right. You know, those are the three basic things people default to, right? Right. And, and maybe that's not thinking like a negotiator. No. Which is very different. It's about what is it that really is it? What does this person really care about in the situation? Right. It may not be whether I did the dishes or not. It might be whether I respect her contribution. Yeah, this is the point that uh, Sue Johnson always makes when I talk with her about it. She's like, what does this person really care about? Yeah. And it's not generally what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's true, by the way, in very high level diplomatic and corporate and governmental negotiations where people issue public statements or make demands at the outset and completely miss the boat in terms of figuring out what each side really cares about. And it's true in little, you know, tiffs that happen between roommates and spouses and partners where, you know, the issue wasn't the car keys. The issue was you interrupted me. Yeah, right. right. And 
you know, so that's, that's, so I think about, I think about sort of three in the book, I talk about these three different situations that present kind of special problems for negotiators. One is what happens when the other person is behaving as if the relationship really doesn't matter. They could give a flying fudge, right? Whether yeah. you come back or don't. And they don't seem to be at all bothered by pounding the table or complaining or, you know, making you feel bad. So what do you do in that situation? What do you do in situations where they're behaving as if they just have to get what they want to get and to hell with you? So that's one special stressful situation. The second situation is what do you do when the relationship is the most important thing? The most important thing. You know, this is your this is the most important relationship you have, or it's your brother or your right, right. You know, your father, your son, your daughter. What do you do? And that's a second set of there's a second set of extra steps to take into account. And then the third is what happens when you represent other people? And it doesn't sound like that sounds sort of innocuous on the surface. But what happens is when you're representing other people, whether it's like your neighborhood or your family, if you're planning a vacation or your team or company, the minute that people start, well, here's what tends to happen. People will go and say, well, what should we try to get? And they give you a long Christmas list of all the things that they want. Right. And then if, if you stop there and say, okay, I'll try to get as many of those as I can as possible, you're cooked. <laughs> you know, unless, you're, unless you're really lucky. Well, in organizations, because people are paid to care about different things, it's like what Max Bazerman would call a predictable surprise that legal and finance and engineering and customer service and, you know, supply management, they all care about different things. They, uh, they get bonused in, for achieving goals. So in other words, goals. you can't win if you, if you start promising to fulfill the, the Christmas list. You make a long list. Well, you you can make a long list and everybody will say, great, you got my five things, great. But then you have to force the organization to tell you, okay, I got 11 things on my list here. Now I have to do some work to get the organization to say which of these are most important and which are least important. And some people are going to say, wait a minute, my things are listed 8th, 9th, and 11th? No way, Jose, you know, I can't live with that. So what are we going to do? Well, we have to have an internal negotiation. It's called the inside-outside problem. I'm going to die already just hearing about it. But see, if you don't do it, here's what happens. You go to the table and your own people start criticizing you. And that feels terrible. Yep. Even worse than the person across the table is a pain in the neck. Yeah. Your own people are saying, well, why didn't you do X? Or you should have said that or be tough or whatever. Right. But you have to make them aware of the fact that they've given you an impossible mandate and get them to be clear. Okay, what should I absolutely try hardest to get? What are some things that would be great to get? And what are some things that I could kind of probably give on if I had to, right? You can't create value. You can't make trades to get more of the things that are good, that are most important, and giving away things that are least important to the other side. You can't do that and make the buy bigger unless you do that exercise first. So those are three special situations. And I think that's how you tackle that sort of feeling of overwhelm that you have. You say, well, what's the situation I'm facing? Okay, the situation's with my wife. So in this situation, I've got social capital and emotional minefields, you know? Yeah. So the diff- think, thinking carefully about what kind of situation it is helps you decide what's important and what to protect and what to pursue. Yes, exactly. And to recognize tactics 
to recognize tactics that the other side is using in the case of like the really obnoxious, difficult counterpart, to be able to name them and to be able to figure out how to respond to them in a way that doesn't take you in the wrong direction, to be able to manage your emotions at that moment, to not let yourself jump to certain conclusions like, well, this person's just a jerk, because there may be many things about the situation from their side. They may be under impossible pressure or somebody told them to go yell at you. So we have to work hard to do, again, do more systematic thinking and be able to soothe ourselves in those moments. And one of the things, Jim, it's funny. I mean, a key moment for me in researching this book was a really something you said, like almost as a throwaway line where we were talking and you said, you said, you know, negotiation is such an unusual situation for human beings. (laughs) It does seem like it to me. Yeah. So it's like as if in the last two or 300 years, all of a sudden there's this new ecology where this sort of frenemy stance, you know, friend and foe, this great book by um, Mo Schweitzer and Adam Glinsky, friend and foe, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. that that we can toggle back and forth. But negotiation is this, it requires holding the ambiguity of thinking, what they want is going to keep me from getting what I want, maybe, or what they want isn't what I want, or, you know, so in that sense, we're in opposition. Yeah. And there, and gosh, what does that mean? But I also think that the way that we sort of grew up as a species was very much about bonding and cooperating and sharing goals and sharing, you know, combining attention towards those shared goals. And when when those conditions are not part of the the situation, I think it's really uncomfortable. But I think it's just this idea that in in our setting, in any negotiation, there's an element of cooperation and an element of competition. And in in fact, there what David Lax and Jim Sabanius coined the, the negotiator's dilemma is this problem. How do life would be better if we could be in a cooperative mode rather than a non-cooperative mode. But if I seek to induce cooperation in you by being totally transparent and forthcoming, and you aren't, I could be exploited. So the negotiator's dilemma is how can I induce a cooperative relationship or mode of interaction without being exploited and it's it's actually profound and really interesting when you frame the problem that way then the answer is well it turns out there's a set of moves that you can make when you're not sure whether they're going to be cooperative or not but you still want to start by making cooperation possible right and that's something i love teaching it's a you know it's a really rich part of teaching negotiation so you said earlier that that combining your sort of scholarship and your science with uh, your science training, especially with your experience, is an aspirational goal for Movius Consulting. But <laughs> I got to say, I watched you during the period of time you were working on this book, sort of in the mines, you know, really digging deep into the into the literature. And the book itself, it really is much more of an expression of the total how that that I've come to to know over the last two decades. And I'm wondering if it seems to you like just the act of putting this book together has changed your your <laughs> view of things or changed your feeling about the work that you do or or your your prescriptive advice or any of that sort of thing. Because you really dug into the literature. Mm-hmm. You didn't know all of that going into the project. Definitely not. Definitely not. And I had a, I should add, I had a really good editor, Maggie Langrick at, at Lifetree Media, who really kind of dug in and said, these things are interesting, but not essential, because otherwise the <laughs> right. book would have been like 900 pages yeah. long. Volume 10. Yeah. 
because yeah. I'm that way. I get interested in I know. a bazillion little side shoots. Um, yeah. Am I different? I mean, I think I'm more... <laughs> I think I feel resolved, pun intended. I think I feel resolved in the sense that I now believe that it's okay to teach people to try to be more confident, to develop emotional confidence or self-efficacy in moments of stress like conflict and to develop their behavioral repertoire and know-how so that they don't have to think really hard about what am I going to do next. They have some practice. They're comfortable being in conflict. They know that when conflict gets to this place, it's time to say time out or I'm going to take the ultimatum they just gave me and reframe it as one option and then suggest some other things. I have a repertoire. I think it's good to teach people those things and that we can still teach people about the dangers of overconfidence in the cognitive realm. And that makes me feel, you know, when I started the book, the reason I wrote it was to figure out, am I doing this wrong? You know, am I teaching people to be, I'm teaching people all about overconfidence and the perils of overconfidence and the fallibility of human reasoning. And I'm giving them exercises that (laughs) that definitely drive that lesson home, which is what a lot of business schools do, you know, and, and now I feel better saying, well, that's possible. And it's also possible to recognize how genuinely and disproportionately stressful interpersonal conflict is. And I think I have a deeper appreciation for that. I think I wandered around for most of my life thinking that was just me, that I hated conflict. But I think actually most people hate conflict. I, everyone I know. Well, not everyone. And the ones that don't hate it, they seem to be better at it. I mean, it seems like at least they, they blaze through. I mean, I'm thinking about... Richie Davidson, for example, who did my postdoc with, the guy can negotiate. I mean, it's mm-hmm. almost it's almost bloodshed when you see him <laughs> negotiating with someone. I mean, he just is so good at achieving his goals. Well, you wonder so, what, what's going on with everyone he's negotiating with. Okay, but you have to ask the implicit in that is the idea that negotiation is like blood sport. See, I'm saying... Right. No, I think... I, yeah, you, that's you, right. Yeah. I think another way of saying it would be some people, there are some people who are comfortable going into conflict, but they put a lot of social capital at risk and they create a lot of bad feelings. They get what they want yeah. more often yeah. and maybe they're happier about it. They just shrug it off. But I'm not convinced that in the long term life gets easier for people and making deals gets easier for people. The only exception to that is people who are born into power and wealth. And if you're born as the son of a dictator in a developing country or you inherit $250 million as a real estate developer, it turns out you can behave in lots of ways. You can burn a million bridges. It doesn't matter. And, um, you know, research by Adam Galinsky and lots of other people has been documenting how how differently people behave when they feel powerful as yeah. opposed to not feeling powerful. So this book is about helping people feel more tannin and stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, I could have titled this book, how to be more confident without being foolish or obnoxious. <laughs> you know, that's really what the book is about because it's not, you don't have to be pushy. I mean, I loved the book lean in uh-huh. and the confidence code. I thought those really laid out in a compelling way, compelling way, the costs of not, negotiating for your own benefit. But and and we know from this research that's coming out, you know, since then or even before Laura Cray and other research that women get and people with less power get penalized for being more assertive. Right. Even by other women and people with less power. Right. It's right, like this right. terrible double bind. So what I hope the book does is to say 
Yes, that's really true. You can miss out on a lot and get less over the course of your life. But you don't have to remedy that by being more assertive or domineering. It just means you have to do these other things like learn to manage your emotion, learn to practice, learn to recognize the cognitive pitfalls that you might fall into. And is there some assertiveness in there? Yes, but it's really not the whole story. There's so much, there's so much else going on in all of that. And it makes me really think, and this is what I wanted to say, you know, just sort of bringing us around full circle to thinking about you starting as a graduate student, feeling a little bit out of place, like in academia, not sure about all this, you know, wondering where, where you wanted to take your life. It seems to me that there are some glaring gaps in training. You know, we, we have statistical training, we have ethics training now, which I think is, is most analogous to what I'm about to suggest. But mm. you know, we, we, learn, we, we spend a lot of time developing our, our content areas, but we don't prepare our students mm. for things like negotiating. And, you know, these are big deals, and they dovetail, I think, with things like ethics in ways that I think you could talk much more about than I could. But it really makes me wonder about whether this is one of those things that we need to make part of our professional development. I wish so badly that I had had some kind of training, maybe with role plays, maybe just re I mean, anything Mm. uh, before I went on the job market, for example, because I literally had no idea what in the hell I was doing. (laughs) I would just show up there. I don't think you're alone. They would usher me into the meeting with the dean and he'd say, well, I've got this amount of money. What does it sound like to you? And I'd be like, okay, (laughs) please, can I have a job? I'll kiss your feet. Um, And honestly, I think it hurt me in a a lot of ways. There will be many more negotiations required though. And I agree with you that people are undertrained and that it would be good for if more people in the world were trained in a mutual gains approach to negotiation and learned that you don't have to be naive about negotiation. It's not that by being nice, you'll get everybody to be nice too, but that you don't have to be a jerk either and leave right. you know blood on the floor to get what right. you want. Right, right. You just have to be smart and systematic. And there are things that we've learned from 40 years of research about the kinds of moves that help and the kinds of problems and quagmires that people tend to wander into so and training can help training can help although training is often the first step and practice and other and other steps are necessary afterward yeah all right man well that was awesome thank you for talking to me (laughs) (laughs) you're very welcome it was so much fun (laughs) Okay, that's it, everybody. Thank you, Mr. Hal Movius, my friend. I am glad I got tacos with you that day in uh, probably October or thereabouts in 1996. Changed my life, man. Hey, you might think that this is the end of my chat with Hal Movius, but that's actually not true. Because shortly I will be releasing some bonus material of Hal and I reminiscing about our graduate school days. And while that might not sound like a very excellent use of your time, do keep in mind that Hal's story is really interesting for illustrating the way he made a a sort of unorthodox approach to graduate school into a highly successful one. I think 
I'm, you know, I may, I may be naive about this, but I think it's the kind of perspective that individuals thinking about graduate school, or I mean, the hell with it, even those in graduate school, or even, even finishing up graduate school, might find really useful. So, watch out for that. Folks, the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stouffer and Gene Ruley and performed by their band, The New Drakes. For information about how to purchase their music, check the About page at circleofwillispodcast.com. Don't forget that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia, and that Circle of Willis is a member of the Teej FM Network. You can find out more about that at teej.fm. If you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes and letting us know how we're doing? It is easy. I say that over and over again. I'm self-conscious about that fact. But I want to say it again. It's easy and we like it. Uh, or send us an email by going to circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab. In any case, I'll see you at episode 10 where I talk with evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson about multi-level selection theory, about the nature of scientific criticism, and about the importance of science communication for both science and society. Until then... Bye-bye.